Yes, that familiar theme music tells us it's time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. So as we started by noting that according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for fornicators. After the Utah State Legislature belatedly voted to repeal the law criminalizing fornication, in which an unmarried person, quote, voluntarily engages in sexual intercourse with another, unquote. So I guess up until last week, having sex in Utah was illegal unless you were married have to confess, I, I do have a certain affinity for the word fornicator. I used to work with a doctor who was a bit of a kook, in addition to being some something of, a, of an evil person. And I remember her mentioning once, to her great chagrin, that her sister was, in fact, a fornicator. Admittedly, I was shocked at the news. But alas, at the time, consoling words escaped me. Anyway... Last week was a bad week for restaurant menus after the mayor of Bologna, Italy launched a campaign to convince the world that the meat-based pasta sauce known globally as Bolognese has no historical connection to his city. Said Mayor Virginio Marola, spaghetti Bolognese doesn't actually exist. He did, however, admit that Bologna had created tortellini. I'll leave it to someone else to call the spaghetti factory and let them know. And finally, we think it was an ugly week for new tech apps with the news that there is a new app to help President Trump's supporters find restaurants where they will be quote-unquote safe. The app, 63rd Safe, rates businesses as either safe or not safe based on such criteria as whether they post political content on social media that means you're not safe, or whether customers are allowed to carry guns. That means it's safe. Developer Scott Wallace says the app is needed due to the rise of socialist goon squads. We say if you spot a socialist goon squad, please call 911. And we had to laugh, a rather bitter laugh at something sent to us on the web, which was that this last week, Donald Trump has condemned John McCain, General Motors, New York, Stephen Colbert, France, Hillary Clinton, immigrants, the FBI, California, China, Jimmy Fallon, and Google. But this last week, Donald Trump had not condemned white supremacist shooters. This led to Andy Borowitz noting that according to the ESPN anchor Jamel Hill, who called Donald Trump a white supremacist, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said last Wednesday that no one has done more than President Trump to prove that white people are not superior. Said Sanders, according to Borowitz, it's grossly unfair that Ms. Hill sought to portray Donald Trump as an upholder of white supremacy when everything he says or does undermines that whole concept. Anyone who thinks that Donald Trump is on some mission to make white people look good hasn't been paying attention. Sanders urged the ESPN anchor to do her homework on Trump before making baseless allegations. She said, read his tweets, listen to his speeches. If you still think Donald Trump is trying to prove that white people are superior, I tip my hat to you. And one final item of humor extracted off, ironically, the internet. Uh, we have this. 
By the way, we hope you did take in Oliver Stone's a great movie, Snowden, a couple of years ago, or to follow the story of what has happened to Edward Snowden. He let the public know that some not-so-good things were taking place at the NSA in terms of how they've been monitoring you and me. And, uh, well, reportedly, Hillary Wang, that's her name, used the custom design algorithm to target users' penile pics and automatically uploaded them to her home servers. FBI agents confiscated 14 computers at Wang's home. That represents a grand total of 53 terabytes of illegally downloaded pictures and documents from the National Security Agency, which does strike us as something of a data breach. Now, it's not clear to us in this story whether these 16 million photographs represent American penises. If so, that would represent uh, approximately 1 in 10 American male genitalia, which frankly, you have a hard time believing that every 10th person has photographed himself. Well, thank you, Mr. Miller has pointed out that, you know, if somebody took 10 pictures of himself, well, that might factor into things. Anyway, Radio Parallax takes the editorial position that you should not photograph your own genitalia and send it to other people. You know, probably every show we do should have at least one good news item and well, the fact that California has been drenched in rain uh, this year, as opposed to many dry winters we've had uh, of late, means that there is widespread anticipation of beautiful flower blooms across our deserts and dry plains. Reportedly, Anza Borrego Desert State Park is currently experiencing a super bloom, a rare profusion of flowers that occurs once every 10 to 15 years. If you are a listener here in California, we suggest that you may wish to go out and check this beautiful spectacle out in the next week or two. For the record, the Antelope Valley Poppy Reserve should see a super bloom beginning in April. Meanwhile, Pinnacles National Park uh, will be showiest in May. Anyway, if you're out there looking at this beautiful display of wild flowers, you may spot some bird watchers, depending upon your personal personality, you may or may not wish to bring up the following. To quote from New Scientist, the March 16th issue, Spotting rare species is a feather in the cap for many bird watchers, but they may need to give their binoculars a cleaning. People who describe themselves as expert birders are more likely to misidentify common species as rare and exotic ones than those who are more modest about their skill. Julia Schroeder of the Imperial College of London and colleagues asked nearly 2,700 amateur UK ornithologists to identify pictures and drawings of six common species. They were surprised by the results. Dozens of self-described experts claimed that some of the common British species depicted were birds seen only in other parts of the world. One confused a starling with the Asian brown flycatcher, usually found in the Himalayas. Another said that a greenfinch was a yellow bunting, evidently a rare sight even in its native Japan. Reportedly, people who were more modest about their expertise were inclined to say they didn't know a particular species, but self-reported experts would come up with truly bizarre things. Pictures of starlings prompted the most mistakes. 44% of images of them weren't identified correctly. One common species, the Scottish crossbill, can't be distinguished from the more widespread common crossbill without hearing its call. 
Schroeder said she doesn't know if the experts' mistakes were due to overconfidence or wanting to show off. She said the results should raise a flag about observations in some citizen science projects. And here's a sad commentary on the world we live in. Publicity for the documentary Leaving Neverland evidently paradoxically raised interest in Michael Jackson's music. In mid-February, streams of Jackson's songs on services such as Spotify shot up to 22.8 million a week, up from 16 million. And here's a story we like. A Georgia woman won $10,000 simply for reading the fine print in a travel insurance policy. The Washington Post reports that Donellan Andrews recently purchased the travel insurance before a trip with friends to Europe. Unlike most people, she actually sat down to read it. On page 7, she encountered a paragraph header that said, Pays to Read. It stated that fewer than 1% of travelers actually read all the policy information, and the first person to email the company about the contest would receive $10,000. So she emailed, and it turned out the contest was no joke. The insurance company, Squaremouth, had quietly started a day earlier sending 73 policies out before Andrew emailed. A Squaremouth spokesman said the company really does want people to read policies to know exactly what's covered. It makes everybody's life a lot easier. But balancing off that good and amusing piece of business news, we have this. Disgraced pharmaceuticals executive Martin Shkreli continues to steer his old company from prison, according to the Wall Street Journal. Using a contraband smartphone, Shkreli still helps call the shots at Phoenixus AG while serving seven years for securities fraud. The CEO earned infamy for raising the price of an HIV medication to $750 per pill from $1,350. The 35-year-old conducts research at an inmate computer lab. He's made prison friends, including Crispy and D-Block, and now does 15 consecutive push-ups thanks to their workout regime. Isn't that nice to know? All right, we've got to take a, a turn back into some disturbing news. Uh, we reported... On last week's program, we wanted to take a closer look at what was happening with the Boeing 737 MAX 8. And it looks like we have some bad news. Jeff Wise, writing in Slate.com, notes that this disaster is rooted in a bad business decision. To stay competitive with a new fuel-efficient Airbus jet, Boeing faced a choice. Design a next-generation 737 from scratch or revise the legacy version, which is a vastly cheaper option which Boeing chose. But to accommodate better engines, it had to move the point where the plane attaches to the wings, resulting in a dangerous tendency for the MAX 8 to pitch up and possibly stall. Boeing compensated for this by adding software that pitches the nose down if it senses an upward drift. The engineers used automation to paper paper over the aircraft's flaws. It does appear that in these two fatal crashes that have taken place, uh, The pilots were struggling soon after takeoff with the automated safety system that erroneously tried to prevent the aircraft from stalling by lowering its nose. For its part, Boeing is insisting that the plane is safe, but is promising to install new flight control software. So the San Jose Mercury News. In other words, there's nothing wrong with our planes, but we want to fix them anyhow. Now, one of the dirty secrets about aviation is that uh, computers are doing most of the flying and getting you from point A to point B. The pilot is, in essence, a backup system. But clearly, in this case, you need to be able to activate that backup system faster. These these flight control systems do not disengage entirely. 
They often continue to assist the pilot in an attempt to prevent a dangerous maneuver. When things go wrong, it's critical that pilots follow the correct procedures, which are different from model to model. Pilots learn to carry checklists spelling out these procedures, but a proliferation of systems necessitates frequent retraining. To make life easier for pilots, the MAX 8 employs a system that makes it feel to them like older, more familiar versions of the 737, but this adds another layer of complexity. It should be noted that incidents are not confined to aviation. In Washington, D.C., automated trains have largely been out of service since 2009. Since 2009, when a faulty circuit made a stationary train invisible to the safety system on the one behind it. Ships may soon face similar problems. Some ferries and offshore support vessels vessels have already replaced ships' wheels with computer-assisted joysticks. A series of accidents involving self-driving cars may have been caused by sensors failing to recognize objects in the road and drivers failing to respond fast enough. Studies have shown that when people have to wrest control from an automated system, it can take them around five seconds to grasp what is happening. The monotony of monitoring a semi-automated vehicle may reduce vigilance by provoking what psychologists refer to as passive fatigue. The Economist notes that such concerns have led some car makers forward among them to consider skipping semi-automation and going straight to something closer to full autonomy, cutting people out of the loop. That doesn't seem like the solution to us. By the way, the FAA warned us seven years ago that Boeing had too much sway over safety approvals of new aircraft. In one of the most detailed descriptions of the relationship between Boeing and the FAA during the 737 MAX's certification, the Seattle Times has quoted unnamed engineers who said the plane maker had understated the power of the flight control software in a system safety analysis submitted to the FAA. The paper said the analysis also failed to account for how the system could reset itself each time the pilot responded, in essence, gradually ratcheting the horizontal stabilizer into a dive position, which may have been what happened here. Anyway, it appears that more research needs to be done into that human-machine interface and take a harder look, perhaps, at AI. And by the way, the subject of AI has recently been bandied about at a new technology Center at Stanford. Last Monday, leading experts at the official opening of the Stanford University's new AI Center said that artificial intelligence will unleash changes humanity is not prepared for as the technology advances at an unprecedented rate. This is leading expert speaking. Bill Gates said artificial intelligence is essentially algorithm-based software that can, quote, see, quote, hear, and, quote, think in ways often mimicking human processes, but faster and theoretically more accurately. However, rapid advances in AI have sparked growing concerns about the ethics of allowing algorithms to make decisions, the possibility that the technology will place more jobs than it creates, and the potentially harmful results algorithms can produce when their input includes human bias. Gates and a host of other leaders in the field laid out the promise of AI to transform life for the better or, or if appropriate measures are not taken for the worse. Meanwhile, we have this from New Scientist magazine. Telling a yellow taxi and a pair of binoculars apart is so easy, most people could do it standing on their head. The piece by Douglas Heaven notes that this is not so for artificial intelligence. Flip the cab upside down and it sees binoculars. This is just one example that shows AI is a lot worse at identifying objects by sight than many people realize. The example, compiled by An Nguyen at Auburn University, 
raises concerns about the real-world ability of image recognition systems. For example, in driverless cars, it's a huge problem, says Nguyen. We already know that AI is often flummoxed by doctored pictures that humans can recognize without any problem, such as a turtle with a special shell pattern that an AI would misidentify as a gun. It notes that these adversarial images are designed specifically to trip up AI. They're contrived and unlikely to be a problem in the real world, or so the logic went. Now it seems you barely need to alter an image for AI to seriously mess up. You can bet we'll continue to follow that story. I do want to pause and backtrack slightly into this issue about grounding the Boeing 737. A real problem has emerged which has produced fatalities. As a result, the world fleet of Boeing 737 MAX 8s has been grounded until some retrofitting can be done to make them safer. Contrast this with what happened to TWA Flight 800 back in 1997. As reported on this program and elsewhere in the media, although not much in the mainstream media, the evidence that Flight 800 was downed by an errant missile, a missile fired by the United States Navy, is overwhelming. But the official version of the U.S. government and TWA and Boeing was that, well, the center fuel tank on that plane, well, it, it, it spontaneously exploded. Yes, apparently due to a design flaw, a spark inside the empty center fuel tank blew the plane to smithereens over Long Island Sound. Yet, oddly enough, the world fleet of Boeing 747s was not retrofitted. They all kept on flying because everybody knew that the story that the center fuel tank exploded was BS. At least everybody in the aviation industry knew this. Anyway, dear listener, if this is the first you've heard of it, you can take this one to the bank. That is a BS story. While Boeing 737 MAX 8s do appear to have a software problem, or at least a control problem, Boeing 747s, on the other hand, will not spontaneously explode on you. Something you can factor into your future travel plans. And I have so much more to say about tech and where it's going, but I, I, I want to pause here and talk about something completely different. It appears that the language of Hawaii is being revived. A piece in the February 23rd issue of The Economist notes that in 1896, after the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy by American business interests, schools were banned from using the language and children were beaten for speaking it. By the late 20th century, aside from a couple of hundred people on one tiny island, in this case Niihau, English had replaced Hawaiian and only the old spoke the language to each other. The Civil Rights Movement brought a revival of interest among the young who were centered at the University of Hawaii at Hilo. Larry Kimura, a professor there, was not satisfied that the language should be merely a subject taught at college. He and his students wanted to bring it back to life. The idea for how to do so came from visiting a Maori who suggested language nests, which had been successfully used to revive the New Zealanders' native language. In 1985, when educating children in Hawaiian was still banned, Kawanoe Kamana and her husband Pila Wilson, both students at Kimura's, created the first Punana Leo, which means language nest at Hilo. Neither was a native speaker, but both were determined to bring up their children as such. They gathered together a small group of children, including their own son and daughter, and elderly native speakers. 
The movement grew. There are now 12 kindergartens at 23 schools, some of them stand-alone Hawaiian medium schools, some Hawaiian medium school stands within English medium schools. The number of children being educated in Hawaii has risen from 1,800 in 2008 to 3,000 in 2018. Along with Japanese, Hawaiian is the most commonly spoken non-English language among children. With so many languages around the world disappearing uh, in our globalized society, uh, it's, it's nice to see this, you know, turn back to something from the past with, you know, with a, with a significant cultural heritage. And although we noted some weeks back about the sad closing of Spangers, the Berkeley Seafood Restaurant, which has been a landmark there for, for so many years, there's a, there's a curious Hawaiian story affixed to the Spangers tale. For many decades, there was a 34-carat yellow diamond ring, which was displayed at Spangers Fresh Fish Grotto in Berkeley. It was called the Star of Denmark, but it turns out it was no such thing. There wasn't even a Denmark connection. It was all contrived. But the real story behind the ring turns out to be no less interesting. The last Hawaiian king, David Kalakaua, and his wife, Queen Kapiolani, came to America on their way to Europe. The story emerging is that King Kalakaua bought the ring to wear at the Jubilee, taking place for Queen Victoria, I believe, from an Australian diamond merchant. In the late 1890s, the king brought the ring with him to San Francisco, and he went to Crocker Bank and took out a loan on it to finance his gambling habit. On his way to the Santa Anita racetrack in Arcadia, he got sick and returned to San Francisco, where he died on January 1891. The ring remained at the Crocker Bank for seven years, where it was sold to a gem dealer in Texas. The gem dealer held it until 1950, when Frank Spanger, an avid collector, acquired the ring. Evidently, the ring's rich history has piqued considerable interest from Hawaii. Evidently, the Bishop Museum, which is at the Hawaiian State Museum of Natural and Cultural History and Iolani Palace in Honolulu, when they found out that the Clars Auction House had this diamond with potential ties to the monarchy, they were excited about the discovery. Asked if the Iolani Palace would bid on the diamond, their spokesman said if the palace were to bid for the diamond on auction, it would be done confidentially. Notice spokesperson for the auction house, they would like to have the ring back in Hawaii. Well, alas, it turns out that at auction, uh, it was sold for $529,000 to a private Bay Area collector. Well, we're kind of sorry that that ring did not wind up uh, back in Honolulu, but who knows? Maybe this Bay Area collector will feel generous and make a donation. All right, we're almost out of time. We've got to end on a positive note today. Let's grab two quick items, one from science, one from romance. European scientists studying Jupiter's moon Europa have concluded that Jupiter's magnetic field could be moving the electrically charged ocean underneath that wall of ice. Jupiter has a very powerful magnetic field, and Europa has salty water beneath it. That salt would make the ocean conduct electricity, which means that a rotating magnetic field could apply a force to it and make the water move. So it is that beneath the icy surface, Europa may have its own version of a Gulf Stream. We hate reporting on science stories with May in the headline, but this one's pretty cool and it's plausible. So there it is. We'll follow up on it. Anyway, we hope you took our advice on last week's program and took appropriate measures as regards Valentine's Day. 
Let us close by reporting on someone who did not. A Kentucky husband apparently bungled Valentine's Day by giving his wife a bucket of turnips rather than the tulips she had requested. Reportedly, Nina Harris said that on the eve of the romantic holiday, she told Alan exactly what she wanted, but he wasn't paying attention. He just said, yes, I know. The following morning, she added, when I got up, I had my first cup of coffee, and he said, oh, your turnips are here. And I said, turnips? Alan then handed Nina a bucket filled with the root vegetables with the words, I love you, stencil on it. After Nina informed him of his mistake, the remorseful Alan supplemented the turnips with actual tulips as well as candy and balloons, and we're willing to bet a whole lot more. Come tiptoe through the tulips with me. All right, that about does it for today's program, Tiptoeing Through the Tulips. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We will talk to you next week. Oh, well.